Book Nine, Chapter Two of the Brothers Karamazov. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martin Giessen. The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett. Book Nine. Chapter Two, The Alarm. Our police captain Mikhail Makarovitch Makarov, a retired lieutenant colonel, was a widower and an excellent man. He had only come to us three years previously, but had won general esteem, chiefly because he knew how to keep society together. He was never without visitors, and could not have got on without them. Someone or other was always dining with him. He never sat down to table without guests. He gave regular dinners too on all sorts of occasions, sometimes most surprising ones. Though the fare was not recherché, it was abundant. The fish pies were excellent, and the wine made up in quantity for what it lacked in quality. The first room his guests entered was a well-fitted billiard room with pictures of English racehorses in black frames on the walls. An essential decoration, as we all know, for a bachelor's billiard room. There was card playing every evening at his house, if only at one table, but at frequent intervals all the society of our town, with their mamas and young ladies, assembled at his house to dance. Mikhail Makarovitch was a widower; he did not live alone. His widowed daughter lived with him, with her two unmarried daughters, grown-up girls who had finished their education. They were of agreeable appearance and lively character, and though every one knew they would have no dowry, they attracted all the young men of fashion to their grandfather's house. Mikhail Makarovitch was by no means very efficient in his work, though he performed his duties no worse than many others. To speak plainly, he was a man of rather narrow education. His understanding of the limits of his administrative power could not always be relied upon. It was not so much that he failed to grasp certain reforms enacted during the present reign, as that he made conspicuous blunders in his interpretation of them. This was not from any special lack of intelligence, but from carelessness, for he was always in too great a hurry to go into the subject. "I have the heart of a soldier rather than of a civilian," he used to say of himself. He had not even formed a definite idea of the fundamental principles of the reforms connected with the emancipation of the serfs, and only picked it up, so to speak, from year to year, involuntarily increasing his knowledge by practice. And yet he was himself a landowner. Piotr Ilyitch knew for certain that he would meet some of Mikhail Makarovitch's visitors there that evening, but he didn't know which. As it happened, at that moment the prosecutor and Varvinsky, our district doctor, a young man who had only just come to us from Petersburg after taking a brilliant degree at the Academy of Medicine, were playing whist at the police captain's. Ippolit Kirillovitch, the prosecutor—he was really the deputy prosecutor, but we always called him the prosecutor—was rather a peculiar man of about five and thirty, inclined to be consumptive. And married to a fat and childless woman, he was vain and irritable, though he had a good intellect and even a kind heart. 
It seemed that all that was wrong with him was that he had a better opinion of himself than his ability warranted, and that made him seem constantly uneasy. He had, moreover, certain higher, even artistic, leanings towards psychology, for instance, a special study of the human heart, a special knowledge of the criminal and his crime. He cherished a grievance on this ground, considering that he had been passed over in the service, and being firmly persuaded that in higher spheres he had not been properly appreciated, and had enemies. In gloomy moments he even threatened to give up his post and practice as a barrister in criminal cases. The unexpected Karamazov case agitated him profoundly. It was a case that might well be talked about all over Russia. But I am anticipating. Nikolai Parfenovich Nelyudov, the young investigating lawyer, who had only come from Petersburg two months before, was sitting in the next room with the young ladies. People talked about it afterwards and wondered that all the gentlemen should, as so intentionally, on the evening of the crime, have been gathered together at the house of the executive authority. Yet it was perfectly simple and happened quite naturally. Hippolyte Kirillovitch's wife had had toothache for the last two days, and he was obliged to go out to escape from her groans. The doctor, from the very nature of his being, could not spend an evening except at cards. Nikolai Parfenovich Nelyudov had been intending for three days past to drop in that evening at Mikhail Makarovitch's, so to speak casually, so as slyly to startle the eldest granddaughter, Olga Mikhailovna, by showing that he knew her secret, that he knew it was her birthday, and that she was trying to conceal it on purpose, so as not to be obliged to give a dance. He anticipated a great deal of merriment, many playful jests about her age, and her being afraid to reveal it, about his knowing her secret, and telling everybody, and so on. The charming young man was a great adept at such teasing. The ladies had christened him the Naughty Man, and he seemed to be delighted at the name. He was extremely well-bred, however, of good family, education, and feelings, and though leading a life of pleasure, his sallies were always innocent and in good taste. He was short and delicate-looking. On his white, slender little fingers he always wore a number of big, glittering rings. When he was engaged in his official duties, he always became extraordinarily grave, as though realising his position and the sanctity of the obligations laid upon him. He had a special gift for mystifying murderers and other criminals of the peasant class during interrogation, and if he did not win their respect, he certainly succeeded in arousing their wonder. Piotr Ilyich was simply dumbfounded when he went into the police captains. He saw instantly that everyone knew. They had positively thrown down their cards, always standing up and talking. Even Nikolai Parfenovitch had left the young ladies and run in, looking strenuous and ready for action. Piotr Ilyich was met with the astounding news that old Fyodor Pavlovitch really had been murdered that evening in his own house, murdered and robbed. The news had only just reached them in the following manner. Marfa Ignatyevna, the wife of old Grigory, who had been knocked senseless near the fence, was sleeping soundly in her bed, and might well have slept till morning after the draught she had taken. 
but all of a sudden she waked up, no doubt roused by a fearful epileptic scream from Smerdyakov, who was lying in the next room unconscious. That scream always preceded his fits, and always terrified and upset Marfa Ignatievna. She could never get accustomed to it. She jumped up and ran half awake to Smerdyakov's room. But it was dark there, and she could only hear the invalid beginning to gasp and struggle. Then Marfa Ignatievna herself screamed out, and was going to call her husband, but suddenly realized that when she had got up he was not beside her in bed. She ran back to the bedstead, and began groping with her hands, but the bed was really empty. And he must have gone out. Where? She ran to the steps and timidly called him. She got no answer, of course, but she caught the sound of groans far away in the garden, in the darkness. She listened. The groans were repeated, and it was evident they came from the garden. "'Good Lord! Just as it was with Lizaveta Smerdyashchaya!' she thought distractedly. She went timidly down the steps and saw that the gate into the garden was open. "'He must be out there, poor dear,' she thought. She went up to the gate, and all at once she distinctly heard Grigory calling her by name. "'Marfa! Marfa!' in a weak, moaning, dreadful voice. "'Lord, preserve us from harm!' Marfa Ignatievna murmured, and ran towards the voice, and that was how she found Grigory. But she found him not by the fence where he had been knocked down, but about twenty paces off. It appeared later that he had crawled away on coming to himself, and probably had been a long time getting so far, losing consciousness several times. She noticed at once that he was covered with blood, and screamed at the top of her voice. Grigory was muttering incoherently, "'He has murdered! His father murdered! Why scream, silly? Run! Fetch someone!' But Marfa continued screaming, and seeing that her master's window was open, and that there was a candle alight in the window, she ran there and began calling Fyodor Pavlovitch. But peeping in at the window, she saw a fearful sight. Her master was lying on his back, motionless on the floor. His light-coloured dressing-gown and white shirt were soaked with blood. The candle on the table brightly lighted up the blood, and the motionless dead face of Fyodor Pavlovitch. Terror-stricken, Marfa rushed away from the window, ran out of the garden, drew the bolt of the big gate, and rang headlong by the back way to the neighbour, Maria Kondratyevna. Both mother and daughter were asleep, but they waked up at Marfa's desperate and persistent screaming and knocking at the shutter. Marfa, shrieking and screaming incoherently, managed to tell them the main fact, and to beg for assistance. It happened that Foma had come back from his wanderings and was staying the night with them. They got him up immediately, and all three ran to the scene of the crime. On the way, Maria Kondratyevna remembered that at about eight o'clock she heard a dreadful scream from their garden, and this was no doubt Grigory's scream, Parricide! uttered when he caught hold of Mitya's leg. Some one person screamed out and then was silent, Maria Kondratyevna explained as she ran. Running to the place where Grigory lay, the two women, with the help of Foma, carried him to the lodge. They lighted a candle, 
and saw that Smerdyakov was no better, that he was writhing in convulsions, his eyes fixed in a squint, and that foam was flowing from his lips. They moistened Grigory's forehead with water mixed with vinegar, and the water revived him at once. He asked immediately, "'Is the master murdered?' Then former and both the women ran to the house, and saw this time that not only the window, but also the door into the garden was wide open, though Fyodor Pavlovitch had for the last week locked himself in every night, and did not allow even Grigory to come in on any pretext. Seeing that door open, they were afraid to go in to Fyodor Pavlovitch, for fear anything should happen afterwards. And when they returned to Grigory, the old man told them to go straight to the police captain. Maria Kondratyevna ran there and gave the alarm to the whole party at the police captain's. She arrived only five minutes before Piotr Ilyich, so that his story came not as his own surmise and theory, but as the direct confirmation by a witness of the theory held by all as to the identity of the criminal, a theory he had in the bottom of his heart refused to believe till that moment. It was resolved to act with energy. The deputy police inspector of the town was commissioned to take four witnesses, to enter Fyodor Pavlovitch's house, and there to open an inquiry on the spot, according to the regular forms, which I will not go into here. The district doctor, a zealous man, new to his work, almost insisted on accompanying the police captain, the prosecutor, and the investigating lawyer. I will note briefly that Fyodor Pavlovitch was found to be quite dead, with his skull battered in. But with what? most likely with the same weapon with which Grigory had been attacked. And immediately that weapon was found. Grigory, to whom all possible medical assistance was at once given, described in a weak and breaking voice how he had been knocked down. They began looking with a lantern by the fence, and found the brass pestle dropped in a most conspicuous place on the garden path. There were no signs of disturbance in the room where Fyodor Pavlovitch was lying but by the bed, behind the screen, they picked up from the floor a big and thick envelope with the inscription, A present of three thousand roubles for my angel Grushenka, if she is willing to come. And below that had been added by Fyodor Pavlovitch, for my little chicken. There were three seals of red sealing-wax on the envelope, but it had been torn open and was empty. The money had been removed. They found also on the floor a piece of narrow pink ribbon with which the envelope had been tied up. One piece of Piotr Ilyich's evidence made a great impression on the prosecutor and the investigating magistrate, namely his idea that Dmitri Fyodorovitch would shoot himself before daybreak, that he had resolved to do so, had spoken of it to Ilyich, had taken the pistols, loaded them before him, written a letter, put it in his pocket, etc., when Piotr Ilyich, though still unwilling to believe in it, threatened to tell someone so as to prevent the suicide, Mitya had answered, grinning, You'll be too late. So they must make haste to Makroya to find the criminal before he really did shoot himself. That's clear, that's clear, repeated the prosecutor in great excitement. That's just the way with mad fellows like that. I shall kill myself tomorrow, so I'll make merry till I die. The story of how he had bought the wine and provisions excited the prosecutor more than ever. 
Do you remember the fellow that murdered a merchant called Olsufiev, gentlemen? He stole fifteen hundred, went at once to have his hair curled, and then, without even hiding the money, carried it almost in his hand in the same way. He went off to the girls. All were delayed, however, by the inquiry, the search, and the formalities, etc., in the house of Fyodor Pavlovitch. It all took time, and so, two hours before starting, they sent on ahead to Makroye, the officer of the rural police, Mavriki Mavrikievich Shmertsov, who had arrived in the town the morning before to get his pay. He was instructed to avoid raising the alarm when he reached Makroye, but to keep constant watch over the criminal till the arrival of the proper authorities, to procure also witnesses for the arrest, police constables, and so on. Mavriki Mavrikievich did as he was told, preserving his incognito, and giving no one but his old acquaintance, Trifon Barisovich, the slightest hint of his secret business. He had spoken to him just before Mitya met the landlord in the balcony, looking for him in the dark, and noticed at once a change in Trifon Barisovich's face and voice. So neither Mitya nor anyone else knew that he was being watched. The box with the pistols had been carried off by Trifon Barisovich and put in a suitable place. Only after four o'clock, almost at sunrise, all the officials, the police captain, the prosecutor, the investigating lawyer, drove up in two carriages, each drawn by three horses. The doctor remained at Fyodor Pavlovich's to make a post-mortem next day on the body but he was particularly interested in the condition of the servant, Smerdyakov. Such violent and protracted epileptic fits, recurring continually for twenty-four hours, are rarely to be met with, and are of interest to science, he declared enthusiastically to his companions, and as they left they laughingly congratulated him on his find. The prosecutor and the investigating lawyer distinctly remembered the doctor's saying that Smerdyakov could not outlive the night. After these long but I think necessary explanations, we will return to that moment of our tale at which we broke off. End of chapter 2 of book 9 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey